and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and today I am joined by one half of the MLS Assist podcast. It's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. How you doing, buddy? I am doing great, Taylor. How are you? I am. I am doing well. You've you've gone to the to the Joe straightforward delivery, so I will respond in kind. <laughs> Is that my brand? No, I don't think so. I just think we've had the comments about Joe never saying, um, I've now put you on the spot, so you can't do it this whole episode. Whereas, um, is where I live, Joe. Uh, awkward pauses is where I exist. Um, yeah, no, I'm right there. I'm right there with you. I'm right there. <laughs> um, I do want to talk a lot of MLS with you, but first I want to start off. I mentioned MLS Assist. I know you've got some other projects going on. There's Benched. There's 361. What can you tell us about what else you're working on? So yeah, there is a lot of things, and I realized this last week, but somehow I still have enough time to do everything. I'm kind of so shocked. I'm glad. I'm grateful for that so far. That probably won't always be the case, but running through projects, MLS Assist, that is the podcast that Jordan Angeli and myself are putting out about what's happening on the field in Major League Soccer. That's what we're going to be talking about today, not about MLS Assist, no. but about Major League Soccer. That's project one. Number two is 361. This is going to be an informative, really interesting video project that myself, Jack Hazard, and Diana Crump are putting together to highlight a lot of the most interesting on-field and off-field storylines in the American soccer world. So we're really excited about it. It's going to be something different that has, to my knowledge, at least never been done specifically for American soccer. So it's going to be illustrated, animated videos with myself doing voiceovers and writing the script. So we're super pumped for that. And then Benched is a way for me to get my writing muscles flexed a little bit. It's a newsletter I'll be putting out weekly about something tactical that I've noticed throughout the week, again, as a way for me to be writing a little bit more and having some fun. So there's a list. Sorry, that was me rambling for quite some time. Not at all. Not at all. I I asked the question. I wanted to know the answer. I also want to know what the inspiration was for 361. Was there a specific story or narrative that you wanted to sort of focus in on, or was it just a general idea to broaden your coverage? So the inspiration, are you talking about behind the name or behind the idea? I mean, 361, I can guess the name, uh, more so the idea. Okay. The idea was just to do something that hasn't been done. It's something different. I enjoy the creative side of things. Jack and Diana are way better at that than I am, but they've been shepherding me along a little bit. And I wanted to use this time that I haven't been writing during quarantine and during this pandemic season. I wanted to be doing something productive. And so that sort of led to the idea. And now we've launched it and we announced it. We'll be launching the first video the first week of October. And we're hoping to get some support from the community because it is a time-consuming endeavor. But we're going to launch it, see how it goes, and then we'll make more businessy decisions from there. There we go. All right. Well, I look forward to the launch. But between now and then, we've got some MLS to talk. It has been a strange season. That's probably a massive understatement. It's definitely a massive understatement. When you look at the standings, let's start with the East. What have been the biggest surprises for you so far? And what has maybe what has not surprised you at all is maybe a better way to put it. What has been a, a surprise, good or bad? And then what has been kind of about what you expected? Good surprise, as in something I wasn't expecting. I'm thinking Orlando City have still got to be near the top of that list, if not at the top of that list. And that's a positive because we started in MLS's back and we saw them turn into something under Oscar Pereja. We saw them control the ball. We saw them, we saw them move it forward and create some really nice opportunities in possession for Nani, for Mauricio Pereira and for Chris Mueller. All of these things. So we're, now we're seeing Daryl DK come out and, and emerge a little bit as a number nine. Oscar Perea has this team playing well, maybe not as well as they were playing during MLS's back down in Orlando, but still playing well. So that's positive surprise. Thing that I am negatively surprised by or just generally disappointed, and I think fans will be able to join with me on this, is 
Atlanta United and the New York Red Bulls being down mm-hmm. and not playing well. They're not at the bottom of the table, but they are, they have not been good this season. Both teams have gone through coaching changes now under interim head coaches. I mean, there are a lot of parallels here in terms of stylistic degradation. Is that a, I'm not sure if that's a term or not, but we're going with it. <laughs> Both of these teams had elite top tier styles in Major League Soccer in terms of how they played. They lost that over time and through coaching changes, and now they've both hit the reset button a little bit. Those two teams are a disappointing storyline from this season, but I guess at the same time, maybe not one that's completely unexpected, at least for Atlanta, because you could see the writing on the wall a little bit with Frank DeBoer. So uh, let's stick with the East then and some of those teams you've already mentioned. Uh, let's go to Orlando City, who, as you said, still near the top. Columbus uh, one spot ahead of them, but the season going very, very well for Orlando. For Oscar Pereja, is, has there been a specific approach that he then adjusts as needed? Or has it been a a more sort of varied approach based on the opponent? Is he doing different things from game to game? Because it seems like he's got the whole team bought in, as you said, but it also seems like there are some variations in there as well. It's a flexible 4-2-3-1. So that's the baseline approach. And they, I mean, taking it even one layer higher, Orlando City under Oscar Pereja wants to be a team that controls the ball and is the team that is dominating possession during the game. That's the overarching bird's eye view. Then you go down a layer into the tactics, and they want to be playing out of a 4-2-3-1, but it's not rigid. It's flexible depending on the personnel, and that's something that I had the opportunity to talk to Oscar Perea back before the season started, close to when he took the job in Orlando. That's something that he mentioned to me at the time. He wanted to have different roles depending on which players were in the lineup and not being completely rigid with every single part of his team. So with those players, depending on if it's maybe if it's Juan on the at right back for Orlando City, he's always going to be pushing high and wide. If it's another player, though, at right back, they might tuck in more central and the winger, the right winger in the two in the four, two, three, one might push wider. So it's flexible in that way, depending on the opponent. And that gives them some ability to bend. Maybe if Orlando City's playing Columbus, who also want to have a good bit of the ball. We might see them back off a little bit, play a little bit deeper, depending on the moment in the game. But if Orlando City is playing the Red Bulls or Nashville, who don't really want the ball, then they can push forward and be more aggressive in that 4-2-3-1. So a varied tactical shape with a fixed tactical identity, I think, is what Oscar Brea has managed to install so far here in Orlando. And then with Columbus, who, as you mentioned, want to keep that ball top of the East, uh, most points in the league, and I believe the best goal difference, a big part of that seems to be their defense, which has only conceded, I think, six goals in 13 games. How has Caleb Porter got that defense so uh, playing so well? What do you make of his tactics? Yeah, that's I love how you highlighted the defensive side first, because it's so tempting for me to look at the midfield weapons that they have, and even Jesse Zardes up top. And want to talk about them all the time. And so I'm sure we will talk about that, or at least if you'll permit me. But defensively, they've been rock solid, right? I think that's a huge part of why this team has been so effective. A lot of it boils down to efficient defensive strategy. The Columbus crew pretty much sit in a 4-4-2 mid-block. Yes, they press sometimes, like pretty much every team in Major League Soccer and around the world is doing at this point. But they'll sit back in a 4-4-2 mid-block. They'll move as a unit. They'll cut off passing angles. And they'll be efficient with how they move, how they win the ball, and how they transition. It helps as well that they have good, solid defensive players. Jonathan Mensah, Josh Williams as those two center backs, Abubakar Keita getting minutes occasionally. These guys are solid Major League Soccer performers. Then you add in a couple of aggressive fullbacks who understand defensive positioning. All of those things combined and fit under the 4-4-2 umbrella 
that has allowed Caleb Porter to have the defensive side taken care of, and then that gives his offensive players, his midfielders, room to create when they do get the ball. Uh, you mentioned Abubakar Keita, who had a, a brief, brief stop in uh, Richmond with the Richmond Kickers. Uh, what have you seen of his development? What does he still need to improve to maybe move up the, the estimation rankings a little bit? It was fun. He was getting minutes at the beginning of the season and even through MLS's back due to injuries to those, you know, higher above him in the pecking order. He hasn't been getting as many minutes recently. And I don't actually know off the top of my head if that's because of an injury on his own or just, I think this is more likely just because Josh Williams and, and Jonathan Mensa are higher quality players. Keita needs to develop consistency. Mm-hmm. I saw this from him back in the U20 World Cup in whatever summer that was, 2019. At this point, the summers have run together completely. But Abubakar Keita is a guy who has a lot of weapons with the ball. He can make aggressive passes down the field, and he likes to do that. But that also sort of embodies his game in that he's often taking more risks than he needs to. I like that when I'm not, when I don't have any stake in the team. But Abubakar Keita needs to develop more solid, consistent passing more patient defensive work and a little bit more speed with how he deals in 1v1 situations, those things will happen. I'm confident those things will happen. I'm confident that he's still going to be getting minutes and that the Columbus crew is a good spot for him right now. But just because he has two guys who are strong ahead of him in the pecking order, he's not first choice right now. All right. All right. So we've talked about uh, Bubakar Keita's development. Let's talk about Jassi Zardes' development. He's currently second in the Golden Boot race with nine goals. Uh, have you seen any aspects of his game that you think have sort of developed specifically? Or is it more so the case that Caleb Porter is basically just utilizing Jassi Zardes' exact skill set very effectively? I think it's that. I think it's that and Greg Berhalter did this as well with the Columbus crew, maybe less so with the men's national team. But Caleb Porter is letting Jossie Zardes do exactly what he's good at. Zardes doesn't have to drop far deep into midfield and create and combine there, although he can. He's better used higher up the field when the crew move the ball forward. Jossie Zardes will be in the box and he will be moving defenders around to either create space for himself or for Lucas Zellerayan, or for Pedro Santos, or for Luis Diaz. He will be doing work in the box, moving defenders around, and creating opportunities for his team. Caleb Porter has allowed him to do that, and Jossi Zardes has, I think, now nine goals. I'm not sure if he scored last night, actually, but he has a lot of goals in Major League Soccer. He's slightly performing his expected goals, but he's still high, high up in the league table for those chances, for those shots that he's taking. So overall, Jossi Zardes is being used perfectly, and he's performing really well in his role. For you personally, how have your views on G.S. Zardes evolved? Have you sort of always been okay with what he brings to, say, the national team because you're aware, aware of his abilities? Were there times when you like were sort of in that group that thought he wasn't good enough, he shouldn't be playing? Uh, I'm wondering like what you personally make of him. Oh, man. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one, right? And I'm guessing a lot of people can identify with this because Jossie Zardes is a really good, really good Major League Soccer striker. That's the reality. When he's being used effectively and when he's being used in the way that we just talked about, he's very good. With the national team, though, he's not always allowed to be the focal point of an attack. And so oftentimes it will be frustrating watching him trying to fulfill roles that a manager has put in front of him when he's not really built for those things. And so in those moments, it looks like, and it's looked like to me in the past, that Jossi Zardes is not good enough to play at that level. But then you think about the rest of the striker depth chart right now, and maybe that's not the case. Maybe he is really one of the only options to play. And so, yeah, does that mean that he's a great option all the time for every system and for every offensive tactic? No. And I I think that's fair. And I even think if you sat Jossie Zardes down, he would probably tell you that. But if you want a coach who can use his specific skill set, use his movement in the box, and have him pretty much just stationed there, 
he's a good option. I think that's always been true, and I hope. I hope, if I'm being honest, that I've always thought that, but that is maybe not true. I have faith in you. I have faith in you to be to be moderate and level-headed. That seems about right. Uh, I'm wondering if you'll be the same about uh, the next two teams I wanted to mention, Philadelphia and Toronto. Uh, as we said, Columbus, top of the table with 30 points, Orlando City with 25, then Philly, Toronto, both on 25. Of those two teams, which do you think could cause the biggest problems for Columbus and Orlando in those rankings? Who is most likely to finish ahead of those two, if anybody? Oh, man. It's a, it's a fun top four, honestly, looking at the standings, having those two teams we've already talked about, and then the Union in Toronto. Philly and Toronto are different. They're different in how they play, and that's what makes it so hard to answer that question as to who could make that jump up to the number one spot. Because if it was two teams that played similarly and one was clearly better at that style than the other, then it would be a lot easier for me to say. But Philly, with their transitional style, they're playing in that 4-2-3-1, occasionally having to break down a team in possession, although that's not their strong suit. That's on one side, and then you have Toronto under Greg Vanny who want to control the ball, want to work it around in possession, have their midfielders play quick passes in combination with each other. They want to move it up forward systematically in possession, and the Union want to go when they win the ball. I think, and this is a, a complete you know guess here, I think the Union, with that style, I, I tend to think tactically, and this is maybe just philosophical here, I think playing without the ball is largely easier to do than playing with the ball. And so that makes me think in a playoff situation or even at the end of the regular season, games are coming quick. A team like the Philadelphia Union might be able to manage minutes a little bit better. Pozuelo, they don't have to deal with trying to get an aging playmaker on the field all the time in order to create chances with the ball. They can let their 4-4-2 diamond in transitional style win games for them. And so to answer your question, I'm thinking the Philadelphia Union, now that I've talked through it with hmm. that 4-4-2 diamond will allow them to get on the run, absorb pressure, and create chances, even when Toronto FC might not be able to do that in their possession structure. And what is Brendan Aronson's current transfer status, as far as you know it? As far as I know it, it's exactly what Tom Bogart reported um, a, a few days ago mm-hmm. from Major League Soccer. Um, essentially, they've agreed, the union have agreed to a verbal agreement with RV Salzburg that will send Brendan Aronson over after the end of the Major League Soccer season. So essentially, that would put Aronson... Barring any, you know, visa travel quarantine problems, that would put him in Austria in time for the second half of the European season. So there won't be a disruption to his season in MLS, to Philly's season overall. Do you think this is a good time for him then to be making that jump? Do you think he's sort of prepared for it from what you've seen of him on the field this season? He's ready. I think he's ready. I don't know that he's going to factor in immediately in Salzburg. In fact, I'd be surprised if he did. But I think he's outgrown Philadelphia. Not that I don't think he has areas to improve, but he's ready. He's gotten a lot of minutes this season. This is the trajectory. He's come through USL. Now he's gotten consistent minutes in Major League Soccer. It's time for him to go. His value is at an all-time high for Brendan Aronson. Not that it couldn't go higher, but he's at a good place in terms of his value. Getting him to a higher level in terms of facilities, in terms of coaching, all of those things. Getting him under Jesse Marsh in Europe Seems like a good thing right now that will only help his trajectory to continue going up instead of maybe plateauing. Today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Magic Spoon, makers of healthy cereal that tastes too good to be true. It's gluten-free, grain-free, high-protein, low-carb, but with natural flavors and zero sugar, which is somehow possible. You've heard me talk about them this week. Here are some other people who have thoughts on Magic Spoon from Fast Company. Uh, They review Magic Spoon is an adult version of what you loved as a kid without the sugar, carbs, or guilt. Again, amazing. From Delish, they taste really, really good, like you wouldn't know they're healthy kind of good. 
and they are super healthy. So a lot of boxes ticked there. You can order uh, the variety pack on their website, or you can choose from individual flavors like fruity, peanut butter, chocolate, and many, many more. If you do want to go the variety pack route, you can go to magicspoon.com slash TSS and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code TSS at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so very confident in their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund you your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash TSS and use code TSS for free shipping. Thank you very much to Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode of the Total Soccer Show and for making breakfast exceptionally good. Now back to my conversation with Joe. All right. And then I want to move to New York for a moment. Not me physically. I'm happy to stay where I am. Uh, but I guess speaking <laughs> of Jesse Marsh, we could go Red Bulls or we could more specifically go NYCFC and Red Bulls because you mentioned Red Bulls not having a good season. They part ways with Chris Armas. The coverage has been like very negative. They're in crisis. They've got to figure things out. Yet they're level on points with NYCFC. And I, and I guess maybe this is just me not like paying attention to that side of the news as much, but I feel like I haven't seen as much crisis news about a NYCFC. Are they really that different despite being level on points? Are the teams different in terms of their overall style or in terms of their overall season to this point? Their season to this point, I guess I'd say. Yeah, I mean, both. it seems fairly similar to me. I think both teams have had high expectations over the last couple of years, and they've had high-profile managers, and now they don't have those things. Yeah, the expectations are still raised, but those have gone down as the quality on the field has gone down. NYCFC playing under Ronnie Dyla have a pretty much fully abandoned Dome Torrens and Patrick Vieira's desire to play with the ball and manipulate numbers and do all those classic cliche possession-y things. They've stopped doing those things and stopped really trying to do those things. Now it's Alex Ring, who's a, a number six, playing as a left winger for uh, Ronnie Dyla. That's, that's what we're seeing with NYCFC right now. We're seeing guys in roles that they can play and they can do well defensively but don't provide a lot of offensive flair and don't provide a lot of offensive production. That's NYCFC. And so they've sort of gone down in the estimation of their fans and really in the estimation of neutrals around the league simply because they're not the same team that they've been. Mm -hmm. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing because defensive efficiency is important, but they're not NYCFC of years past. The Red Bulls, I feel like they've slowly deteriorated and fallen off of mini cliffs down the way. They've gone from Jesse Marsh to Chris Armas, which was a drop. They've gone from Chris Armas now under interim coach Bradley Carnell. It's been a lack of pressing intensity. It's been a lack of offensive creativity. And when you don't have those things as a pressing team, you're going to struggle. So both NYCFC and the Red Bulls have had difficult seasons. And I think the coverage of those things should look similar. But with the Red Bulls sticking with them, uh, they get their win 4-1 to one, uh, over Inter-Miami yesterday. Miami obviously not having the strongest of seasons either, but this is only the Red Bulls' second win, I believe, since August, late August, that is. How much do you think that was, is there a chance that that was the Red Bulls figuring it out versus how much of that was Inter-Miami uh, very much not figuring it out? Yes. <laughs> the answer to those things is yes, I think. So it's Miami... They've struggled defensively for large stretches of the season. Yeah, man. They're That's bad. They're ba- it's, it's bad, right? It's bad at times. I, th- I think they're sort of coming out of a slump, but then they regress again, like you said yesterday. The Red Bulls went back to basics. They played a 4-4-2. It almost looked like a 4-2-4 at times with those wide midfielders pushed high along the front two. They've gone back to basics, and when you're a pressing team that's focused on the defensive side of things, I think that's important. I mean, we saw in Cincinnati earlier this season when Yopstam came in and took over, they got rid of their pseudo-man-marking 
midfield man marking, whatever you want to call it. And they went back to basics into a 5-3-2 defensive block. The Red Bulls went back to basics. They pressured into Miami in moments. They transitioned quickly and got forward. That's a positive building block. That's why I say when we were talking about the union, that's why I say I think it's easier to win games without the ball because you can make little tweaks, you can generate some intensity, and you can run right down teams' throats. And that's what the Red Bulls did to Miami yesterday. But then, like, for the, I think, fourth goal it was, if people haven't seen it, you can go back and watch Inter-Miami sort of not really care is how it looked to me, at least. It's a lot of jogging back and a lot of, like, eh, whatever. Like, well, you know, we're already down three to one. What's one more goal? It, like, maybe that's being harsh, but I don't think it is. Is that, has been, that been sort of a hallmark of them this season? Has it been that up and down? Or was that maybe just a one-off moment of frustration? I don't think it's been that bad. I know the exact moment you're talking about, Taylor. There's just a general lack of defensive effort to get back. I think at that point, it was more specific to the game situation. They've been pushing numbers forward. They made attacking subs. They've been going for the game, and they're down multiple goals. You let another one in, it's really over at that point, and the players knew that. Is that positive body language? Is that something that Bobby Warshaw would like? No, of course not. (laughs) But that doesn't necessarily mean that I, I don't think it's embodied... I don't think it embodies their entire season as a whole for Inter-Miami. All right. All right. That that's maybe makes Inter-Miami fans feel better. Uh, I don't know where you were on Aaron Long before the start of this season, uh, specifically in regards to his U.S. men's national team uh, depth chart ranking. Uh, has the sort of struggles of the Red Bulls made you doubt him at all? Or has he been a decent performer on an otherwise not as impressive team? I didn't see any sort of glaring mistakes from him in, the, in, that, uh, in that win. So at least there's that. I saw some bad giveaways from Tim Parker on the other hand. I think the parallels between Aaron Long and Jossie Zardes are strong. Okay. I think the positional weaknesses around them in the, the striker depth chart versus the center back depth chart are similar. I think the players are good at what they do and limited in a lot of other ways. Zardes, we talked about his movement being a positive, his ability to get on the ball in the box and shoot accurately. Those are positive things. Aaron Long has mobility, has the ability to cover ground, although that's deteriorating as his career is continuing because he's getting older. His mobility is going down. But it still seems to me that Aaron Long is a fine guy to get called up and will and will probably keep getting minutes under Burhalter until either Mark McKenzie or Chris Richards or another center back is ready to take over that right center back spot next to John Brooks in a first team lineup. All right. So uh, I want to then move us along to I think probably Atlanta is where we'll go. We'll go to the Western Conference in a little bit, but uh, sticking with Atlanta, who are currently 10th, that would normally be like not very good in a normal table. It means you're comfortably mid-table and not competing for the title, and yet we're going to have 10 teams make the playoffs. Is there a chance that Atlanta can figure some things out, or do you think this will end up being pretty much just an entire rebuild season? First of all, it's absurd that 10 teams can make the playoffs. Yes, it is. I know the season is is crazy, and a lot of things have happened, and I understand that, but that's that blows my mind. I talked about it on MLS Assist this past week, and I'll probably continue to do that. So that mini rant aside, Atlanta United have some building blocks. Like the Red Bulls have some building blocks, Atlanta United have some building blocks. Offensively, I think they've done some good things right after Steven Glass has taken over, coming in for Frank DeBoer about a month or so ago. Some of those good things involve Pitti Martinez on the left side. Now, Pitti Martinez is gone, but they've still shown some nice glimpses in a 4-3-3 with Emerson Hyman as one of the eights, Rosetto as one of the other eights, pushing high up the field. Then a number six is a little bit deeper. They've had some nice rotations on the wing. They've been doing something, and I can see the pieces there. I don't think they have, from a talent side, They don't. I, this is not me thinking, this is the reality. They don't have nearly the talent that they used to have. I mean, a few weeks ago, 
it, instead of Joseph Martinez starting at a number nine, it was Adam John. Instead of Julian Gressel on the right side, it was Jake Mulraney. Instead of LGP at center back, it was Anton Walks. I mean, the talent has gone down. It's dipped hugely. That said, they have promising attacking pieces in certain places. They brought in a designated player, Marcelino Moreno, coming in from Lanas in Argentina as a designated player, as I said. They have certain things going for them. If they don't make, if they don't make the playoffs this year, I will be shocked, number one. And I, I think that will be a huge issue for them going forward. I think they'll make the playoffs. I think they will have pieces to build on, hopefully getting a permanent head coach for the next full season and then hitting the reset button and going on in that process in 2021. Do you have any co- coaches that you would like them to look at, uh, either for like having had success in the past in Major League Soccer or just because you think they're doing interesting things? Uh, I, I feel like you, you have your finger on the pulse uh, when it comes to interesting tactical trends and shifts. I'm wondering if you've got any names that you think they should be looking at. That's a tough one for me because I, I'd like to think that I do in a lot of areas of the world, but South America, which is where I think... I think Atlanta United should be looking based off of the culture and what they established at the beginning of this club. I think that is the most logical fit. South America is a place where I don't have a great understanding of what the tactical trends are and what coaches are doing there and what coaches could be promising options for Atlanta United. So I'm taking the cop out on that and saying I don't know. But I will say I I do believe that Atlanta United will likely look. This isn't me with insider information. This is me with Mm -hmm. my brain. I think that Atlanta United should look towards Mexico or for Central America or down through South America for their next manager because that's where they started under Tata Martino and that has had that's been where the most success has been for Atlanta United so far. All right, then I've got another like Atlanta United centric hypothetical question for you that I think might be easier, but I'm curious. Uh, if you're Julian Gressel and you go back to before the move happens, we're going to go back in the time machine to before he moved to DC United. Given the way the two seasons have gone for both uh, teams, which one do you think he would rather be playing for right now? <laughs> Oh, man. Now, maybe right now on the day we're recording this, I think Atlanta United is probably the better option. But man, the fact that that was a close call is really not great. Uh, It's really not great, uh, especially if you're a DC United fan. There are coaches in Major League Soccer who I think do have the pressure, are sort of on the hot seat. There are pressures who are the coaches, obviously, who are not. And then there's Ben Olsen, whose seat I think is maybe as cold as it can be. Uh, They came out and said, basically, barring what DC losing every remaining game by a massive scoreline, he will still be in charge of DC United. Um, But I want to do a sort of thought experiment about Ben Olsen for a moment, because... He has been with DC for so long. I think you and Jordan talked about this on your most recent episode. I think he's been coaching there for 10 years and was drafted in like 98, I think Jordan said. Um, And so has that sort of longevity, has had highlights, has obviously had lowlights too. If he were to leave DC United, let's say they decided this is it, we're going to part ways. Is he an attractive coach for other MLS teams based on his resume with DC United? Or do you think he would have a difficult time getting another job in Major League Soccer at least right away? I don't think he's an attractive coaching option for teams around the league. Hmm. I don't think the quality that he's put out on the field in most, I'm not going to say, I was going to say 90%, but that might be harsh. I don't think the quality that he's put out generally for DC United has been high enough with the players that that he's had at his disposal. That level hasn't been good enough to warrant another major league soccer team seeking after him. We don't need to see the coaching carousel like we see in England in a lot of places. Like we don't need to see that with Ben Olsen in major league soccer. Not that I'm advocating for someone to be out of a job, but the, the the way D.C. United have played under him, especially this season, it's been so clear. Injuries, yes, I understand that. But the way they lack an identity, the way that they've lacked any sort of cohesion, I mean, it's hard to watch at times. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to watch. It's difficult to see 
what he's trying to do. And for me, that's almost inexcusable after 10 years coaching one single team. You should have some framework in place, and that's just not there. Um, which which game was it recently in which he said they didn't get off the plane? Was that was that last night against Toronto? Yeah. Yep. Uh, what do you make of that sort of sentiment? Because he has always been a coach who will speak his mind. He will get into it with journalists. He will get into it with his players. But I think coming on the heels of, I forget who it was at DC, saying like he is basically not going to be sacked no matter what, that sort of response from him, it felt like a shot at the team. I've seen the speculation that it felt like some of the players had kind of quit on him and weren't trying as much. It's why he turns to younger players. What do you make of the situation there? Does it seem like the team is turning on him? Does he still seem to have command of the locker room? Is it just a lack of sort of signings and depth that is causing the problems? Or is it just a whole bunch of issues that DC United need to deal with? I'm guessing it's that last one. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I was going to head with this. It's a whole ball of issues bundled together, tangled up into a giant knot. The personnel, the injuries, the lack of tactical identity, the difficulties of the season compounding all of those things together. It makes it a really difficult situation in, in DC. This is not something that I think players, I mean, I'm putting myself in the head of a player. I wouldn't want to be in DC right now. Not that yeah. it's an awful situation, but it's not a great situation. Mm-hmm. You're not really competitive. You're not doing well in the Eastern. I mean, you're down at the bottom of the Eastern Conference in terms of the standings and in terms of pretty much every stat out there. I genuinely or thought you, you wouldn't want to live in DC. <laughs> Just the city well. itself. But yeah, sorry, <laughs> I got you now. No, no offense to people who live in Washington, DC. But as far as being a part of the club, it's not an attractive place to be right now. And so I think all of those issues combined, combined and knotted together make that problem really difficult to untangle, make it really difficult to solve. And it's going to be a long process to get things sorted out. This episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Artifact, who, in my opinion, are best described by Artifact recipient Cindy. She said Artifact is this American life for all of us. Artifact sets you up with one of their professional interviewers to capture stories about the important moments in your life or somebody else's. You could do that. Uh, here's how it works. You go to heyartifact.com. You tell them a few basic things about what you want the Artifact to be about. That makes sense. You'll then answer a few pre-interview questions. The interviews are scheduled. That whole part of the process only takes a few minutes. Then it's a simple phone interview and artifacts professional editors and sound engineers will take it from there delivering a final product that would be ready for broadcast if it were actually going out on npr maybe it is maybe you've got that deal and you're working that way but if not maybe it's just for private uh use for personal consumption maybe you're giving it as a gift any one of those works fine uh, if you want to hear what it's all about, you can listen to the one Daryl and his wife Shannon did about his diagnosis and treatment. That's at heyartifact.com slash Daryl. Or about the TSS origin story. That's at heyartifact.com slash TSS. And when you're ready to book your own, you don't even need to worry about slashes. No slashes on the end. Just go to heyartifact.com and use code TSS at checkout to get $40 off. Once again, that's heyartifact.com. Use code TSS at checkout to get $40 off. Thank you very much to Artifact for sponsoring this episode. Now back one last time to Joe Lowry. All right. So we've talked a a decent amount about the Eastern Conference. Let's look at the West for a minute. Let's go to my initial question, but let's make it about the Western Conference. Uh, What have been your big surprises there and which teams have sort of been who you thought they were going to be? Big surprise. Oh, man, I didn't think San Jose would tank this hard. I really didn't. I thought they would be limited in a lot of games. And I'm in a way, I'm almost proud that Major League Soccer has figured out how to beat them. But I didn't think they would be losing this many games by this many goals consistently. One team that I, I'm happy is coming good, and one thing that I'd like to say I saw coming, I'm pretty sure I talked about it on this show before, is the Colorado Rapids. 
I said they would be doing good things in the MLSS back tournament. Yeah, that didn't happen. That didn't happen at all. But now they're creeping up the Western Conference table. Robin Fraser has them playing really nice soccer. Cole Bassett and Sam Vines are doing fun things on the field at central midfield and left back, respectively. Robin Fraser, I think, is a good soccer coach, and I'm pretty sure he's doing good things in Colorado. So when you say he has them playing nice soccer, what does that look like? Yeah, so the Rapids will play, at this point, they're playing a 4-3-3 with one number six and two number eights. It'll be Cole Bassett and Kellen Acosta as those attacking-minded attacking midfielders. And then it's Eunice Nomley, who's a guy I love, mm-hmm. out on the right wing in most moments. That's something that I've had to come to grips with. This is, wow, this is very self-indulgent here. I've had to come to grips with Eunice Nomley playing out wide instead of as a number 10, which I think, man, a 4-2-3-1 with him as a number 10 would be perfect. But that's not the vision Robin Fraser has for this team. And he's found a way to get Eunice Nomley still involved in allowing him to come in on his right foot, on his left foot, rather, on the right wing. So it's expansive soccer. They're trying to play with the ball, pass through, and then they'll do some interesting things defensively. I'm pretty sure, I need to watch more film on this, but I'm pretty sure they'll man mark a little bit just in the midfield, just with their number eights against the opposing number six or, or double number six or whatever it is, if it's a 4-3-3 or 4-2-3-1. They'll do some... Some unusual things defensively in that midfield, but putting all those things together, it's been fun to watch Colorado, and that's not something that we've always been able to say about the Rapids in recent years. It is not. It is not something I feel like I would even necessarily be able to say right now because I think when I'm watching Major League Soccer, like I'll be honest, we watch so much soccer on the show with the Weekend Review. We're reviewing the Premier League and the Bundesliga. We we don't always talk as much about Major League Soccer. And so when we do, I think we do probably follow the normal pattern of of some podcasts or some media outlets, which are basically the big teams, the big names. Let's talk about El Trafico or something like that. I think I don't always end up watching Colorado as a result for you personally or for you and Jordan. How are you all watching these games? Like, do you watch Colorado with an idea of here's what they normally do? Are they doing that? And if so, great. And if not, what are they doing differently? Like, how do you approach some of these games where you you have a handle on things, but maybe they're not as like eye catching. And so you need to make them a little bit more eye catching or make them a little bit more uh, palatable to people who wouldn't otherwise be watching the Rapids. For us, I think it does start with figuring out what they're doing at a basic level. Mm-hmm. So we'll look at a team like San Jose. And at this point, everyone knows, especially right now, everyone knows what Mateus Almeida is doing with the San Jose Earthquakes with their man marking. But we'll take something something like that, or we'll take FC Dallas or the Colorado Rapids. Those two teams want to be playing more with the ball. And we'll try to figure out what their main style is. And so once we've got that, then it's zooming in a little bit more and figuring out, okay, is there a usual shape that they're playing in? Are there usual rotations that they're doing Take FC Dallas again, for example. Under Lucha Gonzalez, especially with Ryan Hollingshead as left back, he's right-footed, and so they'll do some interesting rotations on that left side between him and the, the left winger. So they'll do different things depending on the specific team, but narrowing in and zeroing in on what those things are for each team, even if it's someone or some team that isn't usually watched by as many people, or even teams that we don't have the chance just because there's 26 teams in MLS, more growing seeming like every day. There's so many teams in the league, we can't watch everyone with the same level of detail, but we'll still try to hit at least those things for every single team in Major League Soccer to have some sort of baseline to go from as we watch these games throughout the season. Is there a specific player or players that you started to pick up on little things they do? Like, oh, he looks at that diagonal pass every time, or like, oh, he always does the Tiago turn or something like that. Like, as you watch these players and get that level of familiarity with them, are you able to spot those little moments that then kind of almost endear them to you because you know this player is going to do that. And oh, he did that thing that I knew he was going to (laughs) do. Yeah, it does happen. I mean, I've been watching a lot, not a lot, a decent amount of Brian Reynolds, a young right back for FC Dallas, who's taken 
over Reggie Cannon's spot now that Reggie Cannon has moved to Portugal. Brian Reynolds will gallop up the right sideline. He's got really long legs. He's really fast. And so now when I watch Brian Reynolds, I'm looking for that Brian Reynolds gallop and watching him try to take a big touch into space, into green grass, either around a defender or just to exploit space quickly on that right side. So I'll look for something like that. Or maybe it's Eduardo Atuesta for LAFC. He'll often do a really cool disguise pass where he'll look off a defender with his eyes. This is something that a lot of top tier central midfielders will do, but he'll look off a defender and then play the ball almost across his hips so that you're not seeing, or the defender's not able to predict where he's going with the ball. So little things like that, you'll start to notice with different players across the league. And you're right, that does have some, that is fun because you can get to know these guys a little bit more. Even if you don't know them personally, you can know how they play. And I like that. The other thing that I feel like tends to happen with like a greater familiarity of a team or if you're paying attention to certain teams, like I would say I tend to pay attention, like a little bit more attention to Seattle. And I then find myself looking at them and almost probing for vulnerabilities a little bit because they're top of the West there. You can have that sort of moment of like, oh, yeah, they're just like doing it. They're scoring goals. They're really exciting. And I think sometimes I will then go the opposite way, sometimes to my detriment in looking for like, OK, what are the vulnerabilities? And in watching their game against LAFC, it was a strange one because they they it's three they keep a clean sheet and yet there were moments when I saw their defense really struggle to play out of the back and at times look a little bit discombobulated people stepping at kind of the wrong moments not looking like they were sort of a unified unit to use those words together uh, but then <laughs> uh, at the same time again it's a shutout so I can't tell if I'm nitpicking do you have any concerns about their defense well first of all I think nitpicking is good right. so I want to I want to say that especially with top teams because that's what coaches are doing right that's what these staffs are doing if they want to take their team to the next level and become as good of a unit as they can be, that's an important process to go through. And so I think it's fair for us who are watching from the outside to nitpick as well and to look at what the weaknesses are on these teams, how they can be exploited, or maybe how to fix them. So with Seattle specifically, yes, the center of defense especially is the one weakness of this team. Maybe a backup for Nico Ladero might be the other weakness. But as far as a main first-choice 11 weakness, it's the two center backs. It's having those guys oftentimes doing their own thing and not working together or not being in combination with the rest of the back line or connected with the midfield. It's issues like that that are giving Brian Schmetzer a few gray hairs, I imagine, in the midst of a really good, solid season at the top of the Western Conference. They have good expected numbers. They have good underlying stats. The Sounders are right now, I think, the favorites in that Western Conference. But yeah, there are still weaknesses there, and I think it's fair to talk about them. And yet, the the goal difference really stands out because not a lot of points separating first from, I don't know, eighth. I think 17 points for RSL, 21 points Seattle. But that goal difference of plus 15 is far superior to anybody else. I think the closest one is FC Dallas with plus six. So the defense, I guess, is is like there's issues there. But in the attack, it feels like it's much harder to nitpick is my feeling. Uh, do you nitpick that attack at all or is it just uh, pretty solid from start to finish? It's good, man. It's really good. And it has been since last season or maybe even before that, looking specifically at Raul Ruiz Diaz as that number nine, Nico Ladero as the number 10, and Jordan Morris on the left wing. It's been somewhat of a rotating cast at right wing. Now it seems like it's Jovan Jones playing that spot most often. But it's those first three guys that I mentioned, Ruiz Diaz, Ladero, and Morris, who are probably one of the, if not the most dangerous, I'm thinking about LAFC now, but maybe the most or second most dangerous attacking trio in Major League Soccer, Morris can get in behind the line and make those outside in-runs from the left wing and get on his right foot or take guys on with his left foot now at the edge of the box. That's been an added element of his game over the last couple of seasons. 
Rui Diaz is so hard to defend. He gives center backs headaches. He can body them. He can turn quickly past them. He can shoot from almost anywhere, which is not analytically sound. And so I'm being somewhat hypocritical because I'll talk about how long shots are generally a bad idea. But when I watch Rui Diaz, he at least gives the illusion that the ball is going in the goal. And then Nico Lodero is the same player he's been for his entire Major League Soccer career, which is impressive given that he's getting older and he's still able to do a lot of the things he's able to do and has been able to do in the past from that number 10 spot, getting on the ball, spraying passes forward, turning in space, being between the lines. The Seattle Sounders are good and their attack is very, very good. Uh, so good that they handed Bob Radley's LAFC a 3-0 loss. Uh, I wanted to then ask you about LAFC. I'm a little bit nervous because I, f- I feel like from everything I've seen on social media, which is always a great indicator of how things are going, uh, you can talk about LAFC, but you can't talk about them being the best team in the world because that makes people roll their eyes. But then also if you attack them, that might not go well either. Uh, do you think Bob Radley is at all concerned about their situation? They're currently sixth, but as I said, the, the point's not that far off from top of the table. What needs Needs to sort of change there, or is it just a matter of getting people into the right shape, the right level of fitness, rounding into form at the right moment? I think there are things for Bob Bradley to be concerned about, and I think there are things that he is concerned about. There are, at the same time, things that LAFC have continued to do so, so well. They're incredibly dangerous in the attack. They're able to get the ball forward in and around the box and do things that no other team in MLS can do with close control, pulling the ball back across the box. I mean, they can do things seriously that no... No team, I think, in the history of the league, maybe outside of Toronto a couple of years ago, has been able to do in the final third. And so that has remained somewhat constant, if not completely constant, even throughout their struggles this season. Now, difficulties. First of all, they've been missing some players. Carlos Vela still out with a knee injury. Atuesta has been working his way back. I think now he is fully back. I think he started last night at that number six spot. So Atuesta is coming back into the midfield. They've also dealt with an inconsistency from Brian Rodriguez, who hasn't been the player that LAFC hoped he would be since coming to MLS. And now it looks like, or at least there's been rumors on social media that he might be headed to Italy to play for Torino. So things are difficult in some ways with the personnel side. Tactically though, I think these are the biggest things that Bob Bradley is going to be concerned about. Number one, and this is by far the biggest thing LAFC have not been able to defend in the box. It's happened so many times this season where the ball has been bouncing around in there and their players honestly are falling over each other and cannot clear the danger, cannot get the ball forward to the feet of an attacker, and the other team pounces on it, scores, and then LVFC are in the hole. That's happened in MLS's back. That happened before MLS's back. That happened even some last season. But it seems like this season, it has truly reached its peak. With their lack of active defending, it's too passive in their box, and then in the press. LAFC love to press, and that's a huge, huge part of what Bob Bradley does with LAFC. They'll step forward and they'll press like they've always done, but they've been a step late. And I think they might be coming out of this, but especially a couple of weeks ago, they could not get the timing right in the press. When one person pressed, it was fine. Then the second person would come, and that might be fine too, but then the third person would come. Maybe it's a midfielder trying to cut off the central midfielder for the other team, and they would be late. And when you're late, when you're pressing, you might as well not press at all. You might as well get numbers behind the ball and try to have some defensive solidity. LAFC's timing was off their effort. I mean, not effort necessarily, but their timing certainly was off. And that was hurting their defensive ability so much that it made it really hard for them to win games. And they weren't winning games. Now they've had a couple more promising results in the last month, and they might be working their way out of this slump. But yes, very fair things to criticize about this team and very you know certain things that Bob Bradley is going to want to work on, especially on the defensive side. 
All right. So, uh, as I said, that's a 3-0 win for the Sounders. They also, I think, prior to that win, beat San Jose 7-1. The Earthquakes followed that up with back-to-back draws, followed by another loss last night, this time 6-1 to to Portland. Joe, a simple, straightforward question. I'm, I'm sure it's just got a very easy answer that you'll be able to concisely explain. Uh, the Earthquakes, w- w- what's happening? Oh, boy. Oh, boy, Taylor. It is a very simple question with a very not concise answer. I mean, actually, I can boil it down. It's take as long as you want, buddy, because I am confused and fascinated and and interested in lots of other adjectives. Okay, then we'll go long. So I want to get my San Jose Earthquakes disclaimer out there. Um, I'm pretty sure man marking is a gimmick, but I'm not entirely sure about that because I know Leeds and Atalanta have been doing it successfully in Europe. So with that disclaimer and, and my desire to research into that more, which I will be doing over the next few weeks, I have questions about what San Jose are doing. They're slow. Like we just talked about LAFC being slow in their press. San Jose are slow in their man marking. And you can't do that. You just cannot have that when you man mark. The margins are so small. They're so slim that if you're a half beat late to get to a Jordan Morris, for example, if you're a half beat late as that right back tracking Morris on the left wing, you're done. Your team's done at that point. He's going to carve through your midfield. And he did just that when the San Jose Earthquakes lost big to the Seattle Sounders. So there are tactical things that are wrong. There are timing things that are wrong. There's questions about Almeida's tactics and his willingness to adapt or to not adapt and whether or not he should or shouldn't. I'm torn on that part specifically, whether you want to be a team who stays rigid with their identity in all situations or whether you need to bend a little bit. That's something that I'm still working through in my head. But certainly from watching this Earthquakes team, they should bend. They need to bend or Almeida really shouldn't make it through the next season. What what do you think they need to do exactly? Do you think it needs to be a modification of the approach does it need to be changed entirely does he need more depth so that he has more legs or uh, better rested legs to be able to handle the kind of physical intensity of that approach if you were going to say like one thing that needs to sort of be turned around whatever it might be what would you go with one thing man i think compromising a little bit on the tactics maybe just a little bit and not giving up not getting rid of the identity completely but i'm actually fascinated from a theoretical standpoint of what a hybrid between man marking and zonal marking all the way across the field would look like. And there might be there might not be a better coach in Major League Soccer to try it than Almeida. What if you changed the back line, left them in a zonal structure now instead of a man-to-man structure, and you had just your central midfield mark the opposing central midfielder? Maybe you had your attackers man mark someone. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but maybe reducing the overall level of insanity across the entire field and having a little bit more sanity in the back and you have some more intensity and some more man marking, which is what Mateo Almeida wants in central midfield. Maybe you blend those two things together and that gets the earthquakes back off the ledge. All that said, yeah, money would help um, having more signings. They're not on the bottom in terms of money spent in Major League Soccer. They brought in players this season. They weren't in the bottom. Maybe they were just at the edge of the bottom third last season in terms of money spent on this roster from the ownership. Having a little a little extra in terms of players to boost the roster would help. Having actual weather to train in in California right now would help. Having fewer games would help. All these things would help, but uh, I'm not sure we're going to see any of them by the end of 2020. 
with the, so with the team like Atlanta for or not Atlanta Atalanta confusing uh you're right like but I feel like that team has completely bought into the style I think uh with Leeds same thing there's a complete buy-in from the team if you're not buying in on you go uh like with San Jose do you get the sense that the players have bought in and maybe it's just a bit too much or do you think there is some sort of hesitancy still with some players about this approach and how strange it can be at times that's why it's so confusing to me, because it, it seems like the players have bought in. You have Chris Wondolowski, who's the leader, the unquestioned leader of this team. It seems like he's bought in. He's talked about it before. You have the team in MLS's back bonding and really performing very, very well in that tournament. You have them last season in their first under Almeida, looking excellent at the end of the year, playing and having fun, it looked like, in that man-marking team, in that man-marking system, rather, suffocating opposing teams. Then you have now. And we're not seeing that same level of on-field buy-in, but I don't think that's any attempt from the players to undermine Almeida and to get him gone and to just tank games. I think that's just they're in a huge mental rut right now in terms of their ability to execute what he wants and their ability to execute the man-marking system in general, and that's what's hurting this team. I don't think it's any desire to get Almeida out the door from the players at all. I just think they're really in a in a huge rut right now tactically. And is that a thing, like... Forgive me if, if this is already kind of asked and answered or ground covered, but I want to like really drill in on it for a moment. Like with Almeida, do you think that that is a thing that he can turn around? Like, do you think he has the inclination to adjust things to change it up a little bit? Or do you think it will be more likely that he does sort of stick to it come hell or high water? I think he's going to stick to it. I do. I talked about the hybrid approach, and that's something that would be great if you could do, if you could put a pause on the season give the Earthquake six weeks, eight weeks to work out those tactics and have him run it out again for the second half of the season in Major League Soccer. That's probably not going to happen. Both it's unrealistic and it doesn't seem like something Almeida is interested in doing. Then the question is at that point, well, if Almeida is going to stick with his style, how much time is he going to get? And that's something that I don't know the answer to. It seems like he likely will be able to come into next season, work some more moves this offseason, get players again rebought in if they're not totally bought in right now before the 2021 season, and we'll go again. But then you keep going down the rabbit hole, right? Major League Soccer teams look like they figured out how to beat man marking. If you pull players out of position, you run players into the gaps, you're going to get the ball forward and you're going to get pot shots near goal. It's really hard to avoid those sorts of things. And so then we're back at the start. Then we're back at, well, if teams are beating you, is this the right thing to do? Do you need to change stylistically? Mateo Almeida hasn't changed so far in his career. He's done this style, at least in Chivas, before getting this job. This is how he sees playing soccer. This is how he sees other coaches like Bielsa playing soccer. And it doesn't seem like he's going to change. So, uh, Taylor, man, I don't know what's going to happen with the earthquakes. I don't know if this is a good idea, if this is an awful idea, if this was ever a good idea. I like it. It's fun. It's different. But it's not working. All right. Well, we'll we'll file that under We Shall See. uh, And I look forward to seeing and then hearing about it from you. Uh, But in the meantime, uh, as I mentioned, the uncompromising Matias Almeida uh, lost uh, in his San Jose team lost six to one to Portland, which stands out to me because Portland right now with that win have a positive goal difference, but obviously did not before. I think they were like 20 goals for 23 against prior to that result, which Feels like it should be disconcerting, and yet they're second in the West. What do you make of Portland so far? Are there issues there with that attack? Are the issues with the defense? Like, what do you think really needs to tighten up for Portland to put them in that contention for winning the league at the end of the season? The West is weird this year. I mean, I feel like one conference is weird every year just because there are so many teams inevitably that end up bunched together. But Portland, yeah, they're in second right now in the Western Conference, and they've done... I mean, they made it to the final and actually won the MLS's back tournament earlier this season. 
they're a tournament team. Mm-hmm. And I, I really do think that the way that Gio Savarese has them playing soccer, sitting back a little bit more, primarily relying on the counterattack, all that stuff works in that setting and is working so far in this weird stop and start Major League Soccer season. The biggest concern for me right now is not their goal difference, but it's losing Sebastian Blanco to an ACL tear. He's no longer able to be the primary playmaker for this team, and he was so good back in MLS's back in July and the early part of August. He was so good on the left side of midfield and even drifting centrally and then tracking back defensively to give cover to the left back for the Portland Timbers. Sebastian Blanco now is gone. He's out for the season. So my biggest question for the Timbers right now is not, are they going to be able to play the same style? I don't think any of that stuff is going to change under Savarese so far this year. We haven't seen any signs of that. My biggest question is, how are they going to replace that production from Sebastian Blanco? And is that going to come back to bite them without any son, any sort of someone to replace him at the same level out on the wing? It's going to be Jimmy Chara likely on the left side, or it's going to be a Bobasi slotting back to the right wing and bringing one of the right wingers over to the left side and then playing one of the other number nines up top and Diego Valeri underneath. All of those pieces can shift around, but none of them combine to, I mean, combined together, those people don't add up to what Sebastian Blanco was with the other complement of attackers. So minus Blanco, Portland are different. They seem to be doing okay right now, but I'm going to be interested to see how that progresses throughout the rest of the season. Uh, if you had to kind of nail it down, which uh, approach do you think you're in favor of? Would you rather see Bubba say shift it, shifting sides? What, what would you like to see happen with Portland? I'd rather see Jeremy Bubba say up top as at number nine where he's been effective for the season. He looks clunky at times that wide just because he's not a winger. He's not a natural winger. He's not a 1v1 guy who wants to attack in isolation on the wing. He's a number nine who sees space well, who likes to move and pull defenders a little bit similar to Zardes in that way, just maybe deeper down on the field. He likes to move and move guys out of position so that other players can take those gaps. Abubasi's scored goals. He's created chances for his teammates up top. I like him at that nine spot, so I'm in favor of leaving him there and pretty much putting any two wingers on the left and on the right in that 4-2-3-1 for Gio Savarese and having a Bobasi and Valeri up top. We talked earlier about the kind of dearth of striking options when it comes to the U.S. men's national team. Where is Bobasi in your depth chart now? Have you seen his kind of game develop over the last six months or so? I have. I've, I, maybe that's just me watching him more, but I think this season has been his breakout season for the Portland Timbers as a number nine. He's gotten minutes all over the field before, all over the attack before for Portland, but now he has been the first choice nine for pretty much this entire season now, there's a question mark by that just because of the Blanco injury. But Abobasi is a guy who should be in on the depth chart for the number nine spot. I don't think you should be ahead of Josie Altador. I probably don't think you should be ahead of Josh Sargent, but I I don't know, man. Word of Bremen is a difficult one to read with Josh Sargent yeah. right now, and it was last season. So that's a question mark. But then you've got uh, Abobasi and you've got Josie Zardes, who I think are the two best options in Major League Soccer right now to be on that depth chart for the U.S. men's national team number nine. All right. Uh, one more Western Conference question and then an international coaching question. I'm guessing you can guess who that's about. Uh, the Galaxy <laughs> dropped points in a 2-0 loss to RSL. They're currently 10th in the West. They won their first games after the restart, but then only got one point from their last three, which was nil-nil against the aforementioned San Jose, who tend to concede goals. Why are they having this sort of up-and-down nature to their season? I ask that knowing that the answer could very well be that it's an up-and-down season. Things are very chaotic. The world is very chaotic. So I'm not trying to necessarily be critical, but this is a team that I thought would certainly at least be better than where they are right now. For the Galaxy, it's been up and down because they've been trying to figure out, and and Guillermo Barceloto has been trying to figure out how to get his best players on the field and how to actually get them in chances for them to succeed. 
for the past season and a half or however long it's been, Shaloto has been all about crosses into the box and crosses into the box. And that was fine. It wasn't fun to watch, but it was fine when you have Zlatan Ibrahimovic up top as a number nine. Then Chicharito comes in and you have to rethink that. And he didn't rethink that at the start. They did the exact same thing or what looked like the exact same thing and crossed the ball 30 times a game. That's not sustainable when you have a five foot nine or however tall Chicharito is number nine up top. And so they've had to rework, rework that system and credit to him for doing that. Credit to Gamabal Shaloto for changing things. And that's what's helped the Galaxy have a little bit better results. Then, though, you add a wrinkle of Chicharito being out with an injury and you play Ethan Zubak up top. That allowed the players to get into rhythm with Christian Pavon being the man as uh, the, the star winger for the Galaxy. Now Chicharito is working his way back and you almost have to reset a little bit because he needs to be in the lineup. He doesn't come to L.A. not to be starting. He needs to be in the lineup. But then the question is, how do you get the best out of him and Pavon at the same time? And the Galaxy just haven't had the chance to work on that question and work on that issue this season because of the stopping and starting because of the stylistic changes and because of injuries so another this was another one to go in the wait and see pile and we're probably not going to find out this season and then Christian Pavon might be gone anyway so we might never know what these what those two guys could do together if they're both performing at their best in a style that suits them uh, so we're not sure what will happen with Christian Pavone. There are reports this week that the Galaxy do want to make that move permanent. Uh, I think those same reports were saying that Boca were going to hold out for at least $10 million, if not more. I don't necessarily mean this from an economic, like, like what is the like definite number where he is at maximum value. But for you, Joe, for what he is for L.A., but then some of the issues you mentioned with Chicharito, what is the value you would put on Christian Pavon? Should it be 10? Should it be 15? Should it be 20? Should it be pay whatever because he's worth it to the organization? Like, how much do you think he should go for? How much should the Galaxy be sort of entertaining versus now nah, that's just too much for a player that we could maybe use that money elsewhere to uh, reinforce in a couple different positions as opposed to just signing the one? In a vacuum where contract details aren't a problem and where the global economy isn't what it is or right. what we think it might be, Christian Pavon to me is worth 20 plus million dollars. He is probably one of, if not the most valuable player in Major League Soccer right now. Diego, uh, Diego Rossi is the other guy I can think of who'd be, you know, top, top tier in that regard. But Pavon is a huge, huge signing. And so the Galaxy, if they could get him and keep him, that would be incredible for this team. And that would be probably, that would have him as the best player in Major League Soccer for the next couple of seasons. I don't think that's likely to happen because I don't envision the Galaxy being able to pay that price. Now, all of that said, there's a real chance where they're able to get him in with some other deal. We've seen the Galaxy pull strings before in that regard. So where Christian Pavone ends up, I don't know. But I am confident that his value should be really, really high, especially relative to the rest of the attackers in Major League Soccer. So I was reading about how they sort of went about getting him so he wasn't a DP, how they spread the deal out over like three seasons so it's not as big of a hit. Are the Galaxy still the most creative team when it comes to kind of figuring out those loopholes and exploiting them? Or have other teams started to catch up in that regard? I think Major League Soccer teams in general have gotten smarter and have learned maybe from uh, Paul and Sam a little bit more about how the league works. Possible. But I do think the Galaxy have been able to do it at the highest profile. They've been able to make their moves for big players and maybe less for like $100,000 of allocation money here and there. The Galaxy have done it with big name signings and that's helped them generate notoriety, generate uh, eyes on them at least and generate money and, and save themselves money in revenue on all of those things together. So the Galaxy probably still number one just in terms of high profile moves, but the league is getting smarter about how to be in the league. 
which is maybe why Frank DeBoer isn't there anymore. Maybe it's just uh, it's a different style. It's a different system. It doesn't quite work for him. He has now taken charge of the Dutch national team. He'll be taking his talents to the Netherlands. Uh, I want you to put on your like Bobby Warshaw contrarian hat for a moment if you need to, if you need to play the sure. character. Is there a chance his approach, his style of management works better at international level? Like I've seen this sort of it has been a a sort of maligned move by the Dutch FA that they're taking this guy who has not had success really at the, his last three clubs and is now taking over a fairly prominent national team. Is there a chance that it works out or is this do you think maybe just a, like we need somebody let's get in Frank de Boer? Well, Taylor, if you'd read my book, um, if you'd read page 47 <laughs> of my book. No, I love Bobby, first of all. Um, I will say, good joke, I yeah. think, thank you. I was working on it every the entire time, time you were talking. Every time he gets mad at me about his book. <laughs> I could read that thing cover to cover in front of him and he would still be like, you didn't read it. You should have read it again. I, yeah, exactly. Um, no, I think I think there's a real chance, a legitimate chance, as as ridiculous as this might be. That it actually does work for Frank DeBoer in the Netherlands, taking charge of that international squad. I think his style coming into Atlanta, and this has been talked about plenty, was contrary to what they'd built so far. And so I question the decision making by the front office at that point to bring him in. But now you get him back to his country, you get him in charge of people who he likely has a better understanding of and how to control that locker room and how to create that culture that he wants there. That's the off-field stuff. I think that could work. Then the on-field stuff. The Netherlands have so much talent. They can play a possession style that he wanted to play in Atlanta. They can do that and have it be natural to them. It doesn't need to be clunky. It doesn't need to be weird. It doesn't need to be against the the transitional style that Tata Martino had built. He can go into that squad and have Virgil van Dijk pinging balls out of the back. He can have Memphis Depay playing as that number nine, moving defenders around up top. I mean, he can do things with uh, Frankie de Jong in central midfield and have him be the pivot of that midfield of whatever shape he wants to use. As weird as it sounds, and I could look like an absolute fool for saying this a year from now. Yeah, but I made you be. I made you be, Bobby. It's fine. That's fine. I'll just just, just blame it on you at that point or on Bobby. It doesn't make any difference. But all the pieces seem like it's the best chance that Frank DeBoer has had to succeed in his coaching career so far. And I'm actually really, really interested to see what it's going to look like. All right, so you heard it here first. Joe Lowry says the Netherlands are going to win the 2021 MLS Cup. Is that correct? <laughs> you got it. You got it. Perfect. Well, if and when that happens, we will have Joe back to talk about it. Uh, hopefully, we'll have him back to talk about other things in between. But for now, Joe, thank you very much. And one more time, how can people find you, your various works, and your various platforms? Yeah, the best spot. Well, first of all, thank you for having me, Taylor. And of second course. of all, the oh. best spot to find me is on Twitter at Joe and Cleats. I've got links to all the things we talked about at the top of the show. MLS Assist, 361, bench, Benched, all of that stuff. You'd think, man, you'd think I could get the name of my newsletter right, but we'll hey, leave you that know, for the next It's time. a whole thing. On Twitter, there's the answer to your question, <laughs> there at we Joe go. and Cleats. Uh, on Twitter, at Joe and Cleats. Joe, thank you very much, as always, for taking the time to talk all things MLS with me today. Of course, Taylor, anytime. 